Hey, how are you? Uh, this is Dave Broadbeck. I'm going to get technical doctor Dave Broadbeck. And I'm going to tell you about, in the following lecture, Psychology 2606 or Biology 2606, whatever you prefer. Introduction to Behavioral Neuroscience for the Winter 2024 term. Don't say 2024. Stop talking like that. You never said 1,993. Of course, most of you weren't born yet, but we didn't. So anyway, uh, right. So here's the lecture. Hope you enjoy it. If you don't, don't really care as long as you learn something. Okay, so uh, last time we were talking about drunk taking behavior and trying to explain it and how, um, as I noted here last time, when people originally talked about drunk taking behavior, they, it just seemed weird. And it is kind of weird because drugs don't affect everybody the same way. Most of us can very responsibly as adults take psychoactive drugs and not turn them into our life's work. Uh, most people can have a few drinks or a couple of hits off a bong and don't think, well, I'm going to do this every day, all day, for the rest of my life. But that does happen to a good chunk of people. So it's weird behavior. Um, nobody could explain it, so originally people said, ah, it's obviously, it's a morality thing. You're just not a good enough person. Now, I don't think this. People do still. I don't. I think most of us, I hope we all don't, but people do still think this way. Listen to how people talk about that have uh, during the opiate crisis that we're in all the world right now. Listen to how people talk about those people that, that, are, that, are, that are having these drug problems. It's a lot of it's not pretty. You don't have to like it. You don't have to like that somebody kind of scary is walking around downtown being weird. But you have to think of them as being bad people and think you have to scoop them all up and throw them all in prison or kill them all. And I hear things like that. I think we all have to. Um, so people still do think this way, but it's not a very good model of drug taking behavior. So the disease model is something that's very popular. So people thought, okay, it's not a problem with your morality or your character. It's a disease. Okay. Uh, today we'd say disorder probably. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the difference is between disorder and disease. People like the word disorder more than disease now, but I think they mean the same thing. This all starts with alcoholism. Uh, the first, hmm, some of the first problem drug taking behavior I think people ever saw was people that drank too much. Uh, everything going back, you can go back to the Mesopotamians, the first people that, the first people that stopped being hunter gatherers and built towns. And they did that to make beer, seriously. Um, even going back to then, <clears throat> people talk about people who drank too much, drank irresponsibly. So it starts here with this, and it starts with a guy named Jelinek, and he comes up, he basically helps found Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and AA really likes the disease model. The question a lot of us have now is that this idea of it being a disease is about 100 years old, maybe a little more, 115, 110 years old. What's the disease mechanism? Okay, that in and of itself doesn't mean this isn't true, but you would think after 110, 115 years, we have an idea. You know, 
We can't cure AIDS, but we know how it works. Right? We can't cure COVID yet, but we know how it works. A lot of money's gone into research here too, and in 100 odd years, we still have alcoholics. Hmm. People sometimes say it's genetic, and yes, that is true. Uh, drug problems are in families. Even you factor out environmental factors, they run in families. That's, that's, there's no doubt about that. But so is your eye color, and I don't think we call it your eye color disease. I think this is more, personally, I think more of like a characteristic, characteristic of somebody. So my, yeah, my answer is, is it genetic? Yes, so what? I mean, it doesn't matter. A lot of things are genetic. It doesn't make it diseases or disorders. My albinism is a disorder. Uh, the length of my right foot isn't. But they both have a pretty big component in them, right? So let's change this a little bit and talk about, let's see if we can get a mechanism. And the idea here is a physical dependence model. You should understand something. The word dependence, when we talk about drug taking, simply means there are withdrawal symptoms. That's all it means. So I'm dependent on caffeine. I drink one cup, eh, one and a half cups of coffee a day. But when I wake up in the morning, I feel like garbage until I push the button on the coffee maker. And it's like, oh, I feel better. That's funny, I feel fine now. I'm caffeine dependent. It's not a big deal. Not a disease or whatever, but that's fine. So the original notion about a disease mechanism here for the physical dependence, or mechanism rather, was people looking at morphine. Morphine was isolated um, as one of the active ingredients in opium in the 1860s. Even earlier than that, 1850s. And people really liked morphine, because, <laughs> you know, it gets you high. So um, some people took it to an extreme. There was an opiate crisis in the 1800s all over the UK and all over uh, the United States. So people said, what's causing this? Why are people getting sick when they don't have the drug? Oh, I bet the drug makes your body make a poison. It makes autotoxin. It doesn't, there's no such thing. Um, again, remember this is the 1800s. You, you can sit here and laugh at people, but nobody's gonna be talking about us in 100 years, we're still talking about these guys. So, you know, they can be wrong, but it's clever. So the idea is stuck, and it's still a very popular idea, not the autotoxin idea, but the idea of, this is a physical need you have. And it accounts for the abnormality of it, doesn't it? Like, oh, I see why it's weird. When you take too much of something, you get, your body creates this bad situation for you, if that makes sense. We combine this with the disease model, and in fact, for the, the, for the most part, the medical establishment out there still pretty much does this. Um, so we get physical dependence model, throwing in with disease models. This is like the, the, the mechanism of the disease, and we're in business. Except that um, it should only be for depressants dependence, because smaller amounts of stimulants don't really cause withdrawal symptoms. Small amounts, and sometimes very small. Like my one and a half cups of coffee a day gives me withdrawal symptom. So that's enough. In that case, you know. But it's all sort of a dark 
uh, coat and your head cut the, the, the blended right into the carpet. I turn around, I can't see that well. <laughs> so how are we going to explain this, right? How are we going to explain disease like, like with this dependence model if we've got stimulants? Well, Tatum and Sievers, see how long, long ago that is? Tatum and Sievers said, oh, there's also a habit that's formed, which is a very convenient way of just tacking something on. Um, but like I said, there's a problem here that stimulants, and even stimulants in such small quantities, they don't produce withdrawal symptoms, can't produce problem drug taking Or if you want to call it addiction, you can. I'm not a big fan of the word addiction. The problem is it's a much shorter thing than saying problem drug taking behavior. It's just the only other alternative I have. So, uh, new idea. Let's, let's come up with a new idea. The psychological dependence model. This is when you need a drug, but you don't really need the drug. And when I say, when I say need here, you don't need it to live, obviously. And you don't even need it, perhaps, because you have withdrawal symptoms. You just need it because you really need it. And that shouldn't make a lot of sense. You know why? Because this is a bullshit idea. Because um, <laughs> it's circular. It's a circular idea. How do I know you're psychologically dependent? Because you crave a drug. Why are you craving a drug? Because you're psychologically dependent. Oh, I just defined the term of itself. Can't do that, really. It's circular. Right? So this leads to a lot, there's a couple of big problems with the model besides the circularity of it. We get continual abuse of drugs that don't produce withdrawal. So if you drink every single day and don't have withdrawal symptoms, and I mean not just having a couple of drinks after dinner, I mean, you know, you wake up and have a shot of rye, but you don't ever get a hangover. Don't ever get any Withdrawal symptoms. I still would call that a problem. I think people that get up in the morning, think about this, basically THC cannabis is, withdrawal symptoms are so mild that we can almost say they don't exist. But would you think it'd be a problem if somebody wakes up in the morning, and I think we've all known people like this, and we still know people like this, maybe talked by someone like this, wakes up in the morning, rolls over, and just takes a hit off a bomb. I know people like that. I did know people like that. I think we'd all define that as a problem. Like, I don't think any of us would say that's perfectly fine. Wake and bake and do it all day is not a good idea. But the withdrawal symptoms would be almost meaningless because there's very few withdrawal symptoms from cannabis, if anything. Right? So what you're getting here is addiction without dependence. How in the hell does that work? And the idea is, well, you're because you're psychologically dependent, but that's not an explanation, is it? Because if I say you're psychologically dependent because you need a drug you don't have dependence on, and then we again it's circular, we're defining it itself. So this again is not a satisfactory explanation. The other thing it does is it divides the psychological and the physical into two separate things, which I really, really, really don't like, and I wish we'd all stop doing it. As much as I think that the, 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 uh, 
concentration we have now on mental health is great. I think we should just start using the word health and realize that mental is in your body. <laughs> it's part of who you are. Right? So, anyway. I'm obviously leading up to what I think is the best explanation, and it's this one, the positive reinforcement model. Um, so people used to think you couldn't get animals addicted, couldn't get problem drug-taking behavior. When I say addicted, that's what I mean. Because animals aren't moral, so they can't, you know, oh, oh no, it's not morality, it's a disease. So they can't get the disease, it's a, it's a human disease. Well, what if we took like a catheter and directly injected it right into their brains or into their bloodstream? And, because it's hard to get rats to take drugs. Right, you, got, you need little rat drug pushers, you need little rat crews going around keeping security. You need a little rat SUV to drive around in to make your meth. Nothing. You need a little rat to throw pizzas up on another rat's house. Nobody's left breaking that. Um, so, how are we going to get them to do it? What we could do is actually get them, if we get them to push a bar, push a bar, they get it direct, directed, like through a catheter or a cannula, directly into their brain. Oh, they'll do that. Spoiler alert, you would too. If we could do it without drilling a hole in your head, you would push a button to get high. Imagine that. You come home and go, well, there we go. Okay. That'd be great. I mean, you can kind of do that now. So they get animals to work for drugs. They get animals to work for drugs, but at levels that are so low that they will not cause any withdrawal symptoms. This is what Thompson and Schuster did the year before I was born, is they had rats working for amphetamine. They pushed a bar in their cage to get amphetamine injected directly into their brains, and they did. And they do it at the expense of doing other things. They do that rather than get food. Gee, that sounds vaguely familiar exactly like how humans behave. <laughs> I guess it's exactly how we behave, right? Well, those of us with the drug problem. So how does this work? Oops. It works such that, okay, there we go. <laughs> okay, this is circular because it sounds like you're working for a drug to reinforce the behavior. This is, it's a reinforcement model, and reinforcement is a thing that usually feels good. It doesn't always feel good. Some things are reinforcing behavior, and they don't feel good. You know what reinforces studying? Tests. If I schedule a test, it really ups your, your studying behavior. So tests actually reinforce studying behavior. Who here loves writing tests? Nobody. Okay, that was actually a test to see if anybody here was completely insane. And clearly they're not, so that's good. Um, believe me, there's one thing worse, marking. Mm -hmm. Is that like, how to mark all of them in the fake phones? No, you wouldn't. Believe me, I've done both. No, you wouldn't. You really, really, really wouldn't. You're done in an hour. You don't get it. It's, seriously. <laughs> Everybody, if you ever do this job, you'll find out all of us say the same thing. Right? I mean, it's just because you get something to do, you know. I bet. So that's the challenges to you to become a professor and give an exam in the park. Maybe you're right. 
thing is, things that feel good usually make the behavior just perceive them more likely. So when a rat uh, pushes the, the button to get some food, it is cage pushes a bar, let's say, a little, little bar to get some food. The food reinforces the bar pressing, right? Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. So the feeling good from the drug reinforces the drug taking. So for example, taking a haul off a cigarette, if you smoke, it feels really good, by the way. You know, it feels great. Even though you know while you're doing it, this is horrible for me. Oh, it's so good. Smokers know that it's going to kill them. Tobacco is a great product, okay? Completely legal product that we use as directed, we'll kill you. Wild. <laughs> anyway, you might think this is circular too. How do we know drug taking behavior is reinforcing? Because you take drugs. Why do you take drugs? Because it's reinforcing. Uh oh. Uh oh. Oh, not again. Not again. Except there's this hy hypothesis, this notion of dopamine running in a very specific circuit in your brain. Going from the ventral tegmental area to the medial forebrain bundle to the nucleus accumbens. This is the brain's reinforcement circuit. <coughs> this circuit is activated when you have an orgasm. It's activated when you eat a good meal. It's activated when you get a really good mark on a test. It's activated when you smoke a cigarette. It's activated when you put a needle in your arm and put heroin in your arm. So we know where reinforcement's coded in your brain, and because of that, it's not circular. If we take morphine and we give it into a part of the brain called the PVG, which is where pain, is, um, pain signals are processed, let's go with that, this will lead to dependence. So you'll get withdrawal symptoms. This is more of Schuster's work. If you give it to the nucleus accumbens, it doesn't. If, you could, if we could somehow develop an opiate that only worked on the reward system, we wouldn't have an opiate crisis as much. Because people, people would still be devoting their lives to it, believe me, because it feels good. But there'd be no withdrawal symptoms for people. Which maybe we don't So that makes sense? That's why this model is a more sensible model. So we're all animals, right? You can actually get, Schuster showed, you could get rats pushing bars for drugs, and you can actually get them pushing bars for drugs at the expense of other reinforcers that are available. That's how reinforcing and those experiments that was amphetamine actually can be. So it's hard to get rats to take things orally, for example, or they're not going to inject themselves, they're not going to smoke anything, and they're not going to, you think of the little, little rat cigarettes. But if we do it directly to the brain. Now, sometimes you can get rats to take drugs early. Um, you can get rats to, they're, the longest time it's hard to get rats to take, to, to drink alcohol. But there is a way to make them drink alcohol, and that's why when you do alcohol studies with rats, what you do is you take mother rats who are nursing and you give them alcohol. And you do that basically by restricting their 
water intake that all their water actually has alcohol in it. But they have no choice. And then their pups, when they mature in like 28 days, rats work quickly. We'll now be able, we'll just orally, they'll just drink, won't drink alcohol. That was something, um, that was something that was discovered by a graduate of Alcoa University. It was discovered by Lynn Honey. And that would have been in 1999, probably. She was an undergrad. Long time ago. Yeah, but. Um, I'm just wondering why we can't get rats to eat drugs. Like, why won't they? Oh, uh, okay. The weird thing about rats is that they're neophobic about food. So they don't like new flavors. Oh. And when they try new flavors, they try very, 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 very small amounts of them. And if there's any effect on them other than I'm not as hungry as I was before, yeah. they don't eat that thing anymore. So you had like two of the exact same food and you like made it so they couldn't really, well, you would try your hardest to make it so they couldn't taste the difference? They yeah. would still not eat the wine? Probably not. That's the problem. Oh. Um, so they're also very good at tasting things. Okay. Uh, so because rats can't, rats can't vomit. So, because of that, they, see, because if you and I eat something bad, we, we puke, mm -hmm. right? If a, if a blue jay eats a monarch butterfly, it pukes it up right away. Somewhere I have a picture of a blue jay puking of a monarch butterfly. I don't know where it is, but I know I have that somewhere. Um, actually, Lynn Honey saw that in a uh, behavior class. Anyway, uh, yeah, so what they do instead of, we have a defense mechanism for we eat something bad, we vomit. They don't have that. So instead, they evolve a different system, which is, if there's just something I've never tasted before, I'm gonna have a little tiny bit of it. And then you know what? If other rats see a sick rat, they go and they smell its breath and see what it's been eating, and then they don't eat that. Okay. Yeah, so you can't get rats to just eat something that they've never eaten before. But this is, the way you do it is, if it's in the mother's milk, then they, they drink alcohol. And the cool thing that actually rats will do uh, turns out is that their, their drinking pattern looks a lot like humans. Just before feeding time, they have a little cocktail party, they have like before dinner drinks, it's wild. It's wild. So it's hard to get rats to do things like to take drugs the same way we take them most of the time. And Lynn Honey's work there was a real breakthrough because she actually got rats to drink alcohol, which is, it was a choice between alcohol and water. They would switch from water to alcohol. Before bed? And just before their big meal of the day. Not unlike the way we all drink alcohol, right? At night and you know, maybe after dinner, maybe before dinner. It's kind of great. Um, so and in fact, going back to picking, see how old this stuff is? This is not, these are not new ideas. They've been rediscovered. They're new ideas that they're, these ideas are getting more traction, but the, the data they're based on are old. You know? Um, they found drug use follows the laws of learning. I'm not going to go into that because we have a whole course called Psychology 3306, Learning. Go nuts, take that, have fun. Uh, I will tell you that there's a whole series of things that show us that drugs are just another reinforcer. They're just another reinforcer. There's nothing magical about them, but they, all they're doing is they're hijacking the brain's reinforcement system. So am I saying it's just conditioning? Yes, that's literally what I'm saying. I'm saying that taking drugs is, is, is operating conditioning. That why do you take 
Why would somebody take heroin? Because it feels really good. And it feels really good almost immediately following putting a tourniquet around your arm and injecting heroin into it, which reinforces that behavior. Because, you know, you might wonder, oh, I've wondered this. Why do people, and I, I've known people who drink like this, who get up in the morning and drink. You know that, what I'm talking about? People who put rye in their fruit loops. I knew somebody who worked at a place where I worked, and that's as identifying as that's going to be, who had a Coke can usually, and the Coke can was full of vodka all day, every day. That's professional level drinking, right? That's not screwing around in. And that's dangerous and not good for you. And I'm amazed this person has managed to have a career. That's all I'm going to say. But they must get sick. Because if you're drinking that much, you're getting real withdrawal symptoms from alcohol. Right? That's, withdrawal symptoms from alcohol are kind of like, you know what a hangover feels like? Times about 100. And you, you hallucinate. And you get the DTs, so like you feel like there's bugs crawling over your body. And there's one quick way to get rid of that, and that's a shot of vodka. So you take a shot of vodka. Um, why would you do that? You know that's going to happen. Yeah, it happens later. It happens later. It happens maybe hours later. When you get, how many times have you all done this? You fall asleep at night. You don't really fall asleep so much as pass out at night. You wake up in the morning, and you wake up like this. You know what? Like this. You haven't even gotten your pajamas. I'm never drinking again. I can't believe I, I'm this stupid. I'm never drinking again. And then you're, you just get up, and you feel like shit. And you're, maybe you puke a couple of times, you're dizzy, diarrhea, nothing's good. You can't even eat, even though you're hungry. And finally, around maybe 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you got just enough settling in your stomach that maybe you can have some like chicken soup or something. Or maybe just a cup of coffee. And then at 3.30, you get a text message that says, you want to go out drinking? You go, yeah, that sounds like fun. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what we all do. That's how we're hooked up. And you know it's irrational to do it. Just like I said, cigarette, I smoked. I smoked for years. And I knew that it was bad for me. I also smoked cigarettes. Going, oh, this feels awesome. This is the greatest thing in the world. My dad had a great line about cigarettes. He used to say, I don't care what anybody says, cigarettes taste good. And they don't actually taste good, but the feeling's good. The nice thing about this model, then, is it explains the negative and positive, the sort of paradoxical nature of drug taking. And the choice in drug depends on the other reinforcers. And this is shown in rat experiments, one that I'll show you in a second. Um, but it's also true with people. If, if, if you have nothing else in your life that is reinforcing to you, and that bottle of rye looking at you, is there, well, that's a pretty good choice. That's going to feel good. Maybe your family hates you, and you got a shitty job. But that bottle of rye looks like a pretty good friend. You know? And that happens. Right? Yeah, if you have more things to be reinforced, that can reinforce you, you're less likely to have a problem with any kind of drugs. And the data show that. 
This actually explains at the physiological level why we have people with drug taking problems, but it also shows us at the societal level, because there are more drug problems the lower your socioeconomic status. I didn't say rich people don't have drug problems. That's ridiculous. I wouldn't say something so stupid. But on average, more poor people have drug problems than rich people. I mean, percentage-wise, I'm not stupid here. I'm like, well, there's more poor people. Shut up. I'm not dumb. Why am I now assuming you're thinking I'm dumb and then coming up with a whole monologue in my head? I don't know. There's something wrong with me. Anyway. So it actually involves something called the matching law. The matching law is this weird thing where if I have one little bar that rat pushes and he gets 10 pieces of food and another rat pushes and gets five pieces of food, the rat will distribute its behavior twice as much to this one as to this one. They, they match the reinforcement um, density with the behavioral density. Okay? And we can, again, take learning, you'll learn all about that. Right. And in fact, this is a great experiment that, uh, this is from the 80s, and it's finally getting play now. It's wild. Um, this is Alexander, who's a Canadian uh, psychologist, actually, and found that uh, two, two kinds of rats. Rats were either in a standard cage on morphine, so they're, they're being forced to have morphine, um, or, or they lived in the rat park. I'm sorry, they're forced. They have a choice they can get water or morphine. Like, there's a two bottles. Or there's rats, rats living in the rat park. The rat park looks like that. It's nice and big, and there's stuff they can, there's sawdust they can crawl in, there's things to do, it's great. The other rats are, standing, are living in standard hanging wire mesh cages. Guess who stops doing morphine? <laughs> the rats living in the rat park. They have stuff to do. Stuff that makes them feel good. Stuff that's reinforcing. So they don't need the drugs for reinforcing things. They don't need the drugs to feel good. Okay, questions on that? So let's talk about some different drugs and how they work and uh, some other stuff. So like I said, you're basically getting a, a very quick version of 3506. Next few things. So, this is a pretty reasonable uh, sort of classification system or taxonomy for drugs. We've got sedative hypnotics. Uh, those are things that put you to sleep. So it's like sleeping pills. It's like barbiturates, benzodiazepines. Alcohol is its own thing. Uh, you're gonna find something as we go through this. The illegal drugs, we don't really know how the legal ones work. The illegal ones we get. Um, Any psychotic drugs are just there's no abuse potential there. They're just drugs to control schizophrenia, things like that. Antidepressants, you probably know what those are for by the name. Narcotic analgesics, that is opiates. It's not a term that's used anymore um, too much because the word narcotic has a legal meaning that is different than its pharmacological meaning. Uh, the legal meaning is just, it's an illegal drug. So cocaine in Canada and the United States are classified as a narcotic. It's not a narcotic, it's literally the opposite. Narcotics put you to sleep. Cocaine doesn't put you to sleep. You've never seen anybody take cocaine. They aren't really going, well, now it's time for a nap. So you know, speaking of you, 
use that so much. Speaking of cocaine, psychomotor stimulants, it's a stimulant. Um, nicotine and caffeine are their own things, and again, we don't quite understand how either of those work. <laughs> of course we don't, because they're legal. Um, hallucinogenics, that's basically everything else that's left that gives you hallucinations. LSD, things like that. And then, uh, cannabis. Okay, so let's talk about some of these. So, so how do sedatives work? So these, are, these are things like sleeping pills, basically. What they do is they modify the effect of GABA. So, and we know that GABA allows chlorine into a neuron, right? Chlorine ion channel, and if that happens, it's a little less likely to fire. So they're positive GABA modulators. They make GABA work better, make it more effective. Barbiturates can actually open up an ion channel all by themselves. At high enough doses, they can open up an ion channel by themselves. What GABA does is it leaves the ion channel open longer, so more chlorine gets in. Sorry, what the barbiturate does is it opens up a GABA. I messed that up by looking at a diagram. I should go the diagram. So the barbiturate receptor opens up the chlorine ion channel. Jeez, I'm screwing this up. The benzodiazepine receptor opens up the ion channel for chlorine and opens up longer once it's you know, stimulated by GABA. The barbiturate one can open the ion channel all by itself. That should tell you that barbiturates are really freaking dangerous. Like, really dangerous. They're perfectly reasonable drugs for certain situations. There's nothing wrong with them. Just that if they can open up a chlorine ion channel by themselves, if you take too many of them, you'll die. Because you'll get shut down. Right? Make sense? Careful with barbiturates. That's like phenobarbital. It's the class. Sodium pentothal, if you want a truth serum. All right. Alcohol. How's it work? Um, I don't know. Are you sure? Uh, it does seem to work on the GABA system. It does depress the sodium ion channel uh, action at a glutamate receptor, so, okay. And after chronic use, the brain kind of adjusts to this. And that's probably the cause of the withdrawal symptoms from alcohol. Withdrawal from alcohol is like a hangover times 100, like I said, so I imagine none of us have withdrawal from alcohol. Um, or if you have, and you're over it now, congratulations, good on you. The, but yes, that might be the cause of withdrawal symptoms. There's a drug that's a glutamate antagonist, sorry, yes, a glutamate antagonist, RO154513, which is also, a, it seems to be an alcohol antagonist. And we do know that that same uh, GABA, there also has an effect at the GABA, GABA receptor complexes, like that receptor complex I showed you in the last slide. 
By the way, this is, is it an alcohol antagonist? Yes. Is it like a James Bond alcohol antagonist where you can take a drug and drink martinis all? No. No, it is not. No, it is not. That doesn't exist. That's not a thing. Okay. People have been drinking alcohol since there have been people. Non-humans ingest alcohol. Right? Go on YouTube and look up drunk elephants. It's funny. It would probably be terrifying if you were around them. I wouldn't want to be around some drunk elephants. I would want to be around them and very far away and there should be a very tall fence. Even if they're not mad an elephant, because you know, they're big animals, they hurt you. <laughs> uh, yeah, please, sorry. Sorry, when you said that the like drugs that are illegal are not well understood, yeah. why? I don't know. I mean, most of the drugs, I should say most, a lot of the illegal drugs are things that we've developed ourselves by, so we know, when I say we, humans, not me. Um, Philip Barbiturates, for example, were developed to, they, had, they, they were developed for a reason. Um, when you look at benzodiazepines, they were developed for a reason to go after data receptors. Like that was done for, that was specifically like that. Or a lot of the antidepressants, the second generation ones, the SSRIs, they were made to be serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Whereas alcohol is just a drug, a thing that happened. And we've been ingesting it for so long. Uh, so I think that's probably why. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that's why. That's just a guess though. Um, so a lot of the drugs that have been developed by drug companies, the drug company knows how your physiology works, and they say, we want to make a drug that does this. So every time you hear about a new antidepressant, it's almost always a, an SSRI of some sort, because they know that that's going to work. Whereas things like nicotine, for example, nicotine shows up one place in nature in a tobacco plant. Um, though weirdly, we have nicotine receptors. That's interesting. Um, you know, and it's the same thing with uh, caffeine's the same way. They pretty much think, well, it's the old place you get it's the coffee plant, but it's the major place you get it. Um, but caffeine is most of these things like caffeine and nicotine, for example, are defenses that the that, that plants have to fight up animals that are going to eat plants. Right? Like you or me having 100 milligrams of caffeine is nothing. Bird that weighs 11 grams, that probably kill it. <laughs> you know, so. Well, I didn't quite think of grams anyway. But yeah, so it's that kind of thing. I think, I think it's that, but I don't actually. That makes sense. Yeah, I think that's, it makes that, it, sort of my head canon is that that's what, that's what it is. I'm not entirely sure it's true. It's just an interesting phenomenon, you know? Not all the illegal drugs, we know how THC works. So any psychotic drugs. What they do is they block dopamine receptors. These drugs are for specifically a specific kind of dopamine receptor, D2. There are four of those. Um, they are for fighting off the, or controlling the symptoms of schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is a psychotic disorder and it's nothing to do with multiple personalities at all. So you all know that. Schizophrenic doesn't mean multiple personalities, they're two different things. Okay, so 
Schizophrenics have hallucinations, delusions of grandeur, things like that. Uh, so, and also um, paranoia, it's very common. Paranoia is very common. There was a guy in the lab I worked at in, in London who was schizophrenic. We didn't know he was schizophrenic at first. We thought he was a little weird. Then when he told me that he knew I could hear his thoughts through the wall because he had a chip implanted in him, I thought, oh. But even then, I was like, no, you're just freaking me out, man. PhD in psychology. No, you're just weird. No, guy, it's schizophrenic. It's extremely upsetting behavior and disturbing behavior to anybody. Nobody thinks this is normal. Don't get into the thing where schizophrenia is just the way that we label eccentric people, man. That's stupid. That's not true. And I can show you in a second how it's not true. What do these drugs do? They bind to dopamine receptors. Does, what are they, the issue probably with schizophrenia is too much dopamine and too many dopamine receptors. The relationship between binding effectiveness and D2 uh, Sorry, between effectiveness of like the ED50 and the binding uh, to D2 receptors is basically one. I'll show you a graph in a second. Um, they also block acetylcholine, histamine, and serotonin. In fact, the first attempt at any psychotic drug was with histamine. They alter GABA, various peptides, and they cause an increase in norepinephrine synthesis because they block uh, norepinephrine receptors. So. Okay, this, see that, this should tell you something. I don't see data that clear in life sciences ever. That's not a thing. That looks like physics. Straight lines? I know, yes, they're both log scales, but whatever. Straight lines. You don't see straight lines that often. And that's E2 binding effectiveness, or efficiency, I'm sorry, and ED50 for the drug. If you don't think that this is a dopamine problem, schizophrenia, you can't read graphs. Like, that should tell you that it's dopamine. Like, it just is. There's no argument to be had. Okay. These drugs are very effective, by the way. Uh, they're, they're, uh, the good thing about them, is a good thing, uh, is that people can live, if they, once you find the right drug at the right dose, people can live okay, pretty normally. Not everybody, that's good for you, but a lot of people can, which is good, because they used to, no, nobody could. These drugs have no street value at all. You will never have someone come up to you on the street and say, hey buddy, you want to buy some chloroprozine? That just isn't going to happen because they have no abuse potential. Because think about it, they block dopamine. Didn't I just say that the reward system runs on dopamine? They make things less fun. They make food taste no good. They make sex no fun. Gee, no food, no sex. Food and sex aren't fun. What do you have left? They probably make video games shitty. That's it, I quit. Um, you can see why people would say that, because it's like, I want to have enjoy things a little bit. So it's hard to get people to stay on with those. They work, but they aren't a lot of fun. And they're also making you really tired. 
On the upside, you stop thinking you're Napoleon and thinking that people can read your mind through satellites. That's usually a good thing. And most people who are schizophrenic can get on their medication, they're like, oh, this has changed my life. However, I'm always tired and food tastes like shit. <laughs> but at least I don't hear, you know, Satan telling, talking to me in my head. By the way, most people who are schizophrenic are not violent. You should remember that. Most of the people who you see out on the street who are yelling at voices and stuff, they aren't going to hurt anybody. It's disturbing behavior, but they're not going to hurt you. I'm not saying go hang out with you, because they'll be deleted, but... Yeah, there are people like that, though. That is true. Yeah. Most aren't. Yeah. Most are the same level of violence that most of us have, which is there's some. Oh, yeah. 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 Can I ask you? You can tell me. No. Uh, does your acquaintance feel good when they're on their medication? I don't know this person personally. Oh. I just like spent a whole summer in the town and he's around. He's really dumb. See, that's a shame because the guy should be medicated and probably be okay. He's not medicated. His parents, yeah. Yeah. There's a real stigma among some people still about mental, uh, you know, psychological disorders. It's really sad because there shouldn't be. There shouldn't be. Because, like, people can contribute to society. You know, A Beautiful Mind, you know that movie? I mean, not everybody's going to win a Nobel Prize in mathematics, but... Spoiler alert, that guy was it's a 30-year-old movie. It's a 30-year-old movie. You know, hold yourself. We also won World War II. That's another spoiler alert. Nixon resigned in 1975. Spoiler alert. Um, when I was watching that movie, I had this horrible habit of figuring out what's happening in movies and then seeing it. It's a bad thing. So I stopped doing that. I just write things down. Because I can't stop. I can't not talking about how great I am. So we were watching A Beautiful Mind, and I just took a piece of paper and I wrote out paranoid schizophrenia. And I put it in the coffee table. My wife said, what's that? I said, nothing. She said, you figured out what's happening in this movie. I said, oh, yeah. Oh, I know what's happening. She said, why did you do that? I said, I didn't say it. Watch the movie. This is a step. I make small steps. you're proving the point, too, that you knew Oh, I know. I'm horrible. I don't, please. I am a real peach to live with. Don't. This is all, this is a me problem, not an anybody else problem. Okay, where do they foul up the reward system? They shut down your reward system. No abuse potential here. Uh, they also affect the night restraint system. Now, the problem here is that that system is really important for smooth movement. And people with Parkinson's don't have enough dopamine. And in fact, if you get the wrong drug or the wrong antipsychotic or the wrong dose of it, you end up with Parkinson's-like symptoms. There are drugs now, there's a second generation of antipsychotics that don't seem to cause these things. That are called atypical drugs. And they, and it probably has something to do with blocking acetylcholine receptors, as I've said here. Um, but those drugs are better. That's it. Why are those drugs not always used? And why do we still use the first generation of antipsychotics that might cause something like Parkinson's? Good question. 
first of all, cheaper. But the second reason is not everybody can take the second generation antipsychotics. Um, there are populations that it shuts their liver down. And you kind of need that. So it's done with extreme caution. And most people can be fine with the, the first generation ones when you get the right dose. Antidepressants. Okay. Manti, uh, manti? Antidepressants. Uh, there are three classes of antidepressants. And the first one is monoamine oxidase inhibitors. And I just said, it's obvious how that works, but I'll explain it to you. What I'm saying is the name should tell you how they work. So, all right. There. Monoamine neurotransmitters, right? Serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, those guys. We need a certain, this is how, the theory about this is that we need a certain level of those neurotransmitters to make sure that we're not depressed, okay? So if we've got some monoamine neurotransmitters floating around, just floating around, and we have a, a, an enzyme called monoamine oxidase. Monoamine oxidase destroys monoamines. Good. So it comes along and let's say it gets rid of these two. But let's say we only need two molecules. It's clearly more than two, but for our purposes, let's say we need two to not be depressed. But this is all of us, we're fine. What if depressed people don't have enough monoamines? So, now let's say you only have, oh, that's the last part of the A as well. Okay, now, now you're a depressed person and you don't have any, you've got this, uh-oh, but you still have monoamine oxidase that comes along and now you're done. Uh-oh, I can't, I'm gonna be depressed now because I have no monoamines. What if we had a drug that blocked monoamine oxidase? Like, I don't know, a monoamine oxidase inhibitor? Now you have the right, right number, now you got two and you're fine. Again, it isn't just two molecules. But you get the, the notion of how this works. It's really, pretty, I, think, I think, pretty straightforward. You gotta sort of think of the, the steps here. That's how these drugs work. There's a lot of subclasses that take 3506, you learn all about them. All right, questions about monoamine oxidase inhibitors. Tricyclic antidepressants are a class of drugs that stop the reuptake of monoamines. And if they stop reuptake, there's now going to be more monoamines available. Whereas selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, well that name, I shouldn't have to explain that to you. It stops the reuptake of serotonin, so I should give it anyway. Uh, it was one sentence. Uh, so what those drugs do is they just stop the reuptake of serotonin. So more serotonin is sitting in the synapse. The notion again is depressed people don't have enough, in this case, serotonin. It's certainly not that simple. It's not just that. It's not just that. The effects, by the way, 
on reuptake or on monoamine oxidase are immediate. You take the drug, it happen right away. But the, the antidepressant effects take between a week and maybe almost two months for some people. Which is a little weird. That should tell you something. It's probably more complicated than just, than just not enough serotonin. Something more complicated. Now, is it because your brain's adjusting? That's one theory out there. And it could be that. It's probably the easiest explanation. I don't know if I think it's the best explanation, but it's the easiest one. Now, there's lithium, lithium carbonate. If you take that, salts of lithium as a as a thing to deal with uh, the mania part. So if you're depressed, remember, depression doesn't mean sad. It means flat affect. There's sadness in there too, but it means like nothing. It means having no self-esteem. It means feeling like everything you do always is a screw up, everything. And we all feel like that now and then. I mean feeling like that all the time. I mean like feeling that you're not going to kill yourself because you probably would screw it up. It's when people are coming out of depression a little bit, they're starting to get a little bit better, that's when they're really more likely to kill themselves. Because they get just enough self-efficacy that they think they do themselves in. That's true. But the opposite of that is mania. Other part of bipolar, sometimes there's mania on its own, it's pretty rare. Uh, we're not entirely sure, how, and then there's, it's, it's controlled by a salt of lithium, it's a trivial thing to take. It's also extremely poisonous, but um, it's got a therapeutic index of like three. So you don't take two pills if you missed one. In fact, I once saw someone do that. A student did a class of mine in Newfoundland when I was teaching there, and uh, Intro psych, and I was giving a quick lecture on drugs. I wasn't on drugs, you understand what I'm saying? And, well, any more than usual, I guess. And, guy comes up to me after class, and he says, you know a lot about drugs, right? I said, yeah. Actually, I'm sorry, he said it like this, you know a lot about drugs, right? Because it's new for they all talk, they all talk fun. And, I used to say to me in the course, you know, you can tell I'm not from this province because I don't have one of your ridiculous accents. And the people that laughed, you know, I was kidding. I thought, oh, there's, there's, those are the cool people. And he said he's taken lithium now, and he just got diagnosed, and he's feeling so much better, but he doesn't feel really well today. And, it, and I turned the lights on, and it was the same kind of lighting as an NW200, and the same kind of color scheme. Universities all look the same. And they all talk about how unique they are. They all look the freaking same. And uh, all over the world, by the way. Oxford, now, the really cool old parts of Oxford, which are really cool and awesome, and most of it are great, but you know what? I give a, I give a couple of talks at Oxford in a room that looked just like this. <laughs> so it's, it's not, anyway. I said, lights come up, and it's kind of greenish in the room, but I looked at it, I said, I said son, you're green. And he said, yeah, I don't feel very well. I said, uh, so you said you just started taking lithium. Take two of them because you missed those? He said, yeah, that's what you do with antidepressants. He says, lithium is not an antidepressant. Lithium is a mood stabilizer for the manic part of your bipolar. Now we're going to get you to the hospital. Because <laughs> he had lithium poisoning. He was fine, but I made two intros. 
But it was before everybody had cell phones, like 1999, maybe 2000. So we're like, I said, you gotta come with me. I, we gotta find a phone. And we eventually, I think I went to, to an office and asked one of the administrative assistants, can I use a phone? I gotta call an ambulance for this guy. He called his dad. His dad got there in like three minutes, took him to the hospital, everything was fine. All I'm saying is when you go on lithium, where the dose that's usually the most effective dose is 0.4 millimoles per milliliter of blood, um, but 1.2 millimoles will kill you. Like it's really dangerous drug. But it works and it's really cheap. All right, whoops, what am I doing? Screw that up. And yes, how the hell does lithium work? And I don't know the answer. A lot of guesses, it's, uh, but really, they're mostly, they're basic answers. Now, when I taught this course last term, this was the first lecture back from when I went down to Southern Ontario and saw my daughter defend her PhD thesis, so that's her defending her PhD thesis. Just thought I'd throw that up there, and that's now going to be in this slideshow for the rest of my life. Right, opiate receptors. Opiates, now you'll see, oh, this is easy. There are receptors that opiates bind to. The opiates that we make ourselves, endorphins, are indistinguishable from morphine. They're the same drug. We just, we don't make it in industrial quantities. Like you can get and put it in your arm. So there's three or four types. And you say, what, or? Well, there's a final type of receptor that's not just an opiate receptor. So throughout the limbic system, the hippocampus, the amygdala, and the thalamus. Remember, thalamus is important for uh, sensory information, routing sensory information. Locus coriolis is important in making decisions about where to look at things. It's like recognizing objects, sort of. It's like knowing where an object is is a better way to put it, I guess. The mu receptor is quite average. Because <laughs> mu is a, is a statistics joke, very small. There are very few, there are no statistics jokes. Statistics is the field for people who found being an accountant just a little too edgy. The only good statistics joke, it's not that good, but it's not, you know, these two unbiased estimators are talking to each other. And one says, what do you think of being married? And the other one says, well, it's not so bad as long as you don't mind losing a degree of freedom. Thank you. So, so I told you, it's not that funny. That's the level, statistics jokes stop right there. Anyway, this receptor, when I say it's responsible for the interesting things, I mean, I don't mean the high, I mean like the weird perceptual things that happen, right? If you've ever taken uh, codeine or morphine, you know what I'm talking about. This is sort of how everything's just kind of off, you know? The delta receptors in the limbic system that doesn't overlap with mu, uh, the cortex, hypothalamus, nucleus, oh, look, 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 look. Right there. That's the feel-good part. The medulla as well. Uh, a lot of antipsychotic drugs also work on these receptors. The, Hypothalamus, one of the withdrawal symptoms from opiates is uh, goosebumps, okay? Because uh, you're shivering, you're cold, even though it's not cold. 
That's where the expression cold turkey comes from. Because you look like a cold turkey. It affects your sleep and wakefulness, sure. Um, but this is the big one for this. Then there's the Kappa receptor. Oh, look, the nucleus accumbens again, and the ventral tegmental area. Okay, great. Whoops, I'm sorry about that. Back to that. Okay, I'm screwing up everything. Is that where we are? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, hypothalamus and thalamus again, ventral tegmental area. And then there's the sigma receptor, which is not just opioids that affect it, it's um, all kinds of other things. And this can lead to psychotic like symptoms. Uh, and if you've seen people on opiates, you can see psychotic. You can see people that are acting like the whole world's going after them, etc. Et the paranoia, like it looks like us, can look a lot like schizophrenia. So the periaqueductal gray is full of opiate receptors for endorphin, and when you're in pain, those are stimulated, but not just when you're in pain, uh, vigorous exercise will stimulate them, and it'll stimulate the production of endorphins and enkephalins. Enkephalins are just, a, they're, they're the same basin as endorphins, they work in your spinal column to combat pain, endorphins work in your, right in your brain, okay? Um, one's a ligand, that's enkephalin, and the other one isn't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so vigorous exercise will do it, will make you make endorphins. So anybody here who works out will know that afterwards you feel good. And that's a physical effect. You're actually making yourself take your own opiates. Like when you go, oh, I mean, you're in the shower going, that was amazing, I feel great. Just realize that that's not because you should be so proud of yourself for working out. That's because there are endorphins, which are basically just an opiate, because that's all they are, going all over your paraaqueductal gray, going, you feeling high? Feel a little high? Feel good? You like that? But they're also released during sex. Now, that's not because you're going to probably hurt yourself. <laughs> I hope. Look, I'm not going to keep shame anybody, whatever you're going to do. But, um, I mean, if you want to think about their function, their function is to kill pain, but they also do make you feel good. I think we can all see the evolutionary advantage to sex feeling good. Don't they explain that? Right? It's hard to procreate without the sex with the humans. Oh, it affects a little bit else. The amygdala, respiratory cough and vomit centers and the reward system basically. So what happens is that they slow you down. That's all these things do, but they slow down really important things like breathing. Which you kind of need to do. Well, you guys know this, but if you don't breathe, it's a bad idea. And they'll make you throw up and, oh, there's codeine cough medicine. Right? It's codeine cough medicine, and it works like, right away. My wife once had a really bad cough, so bad. We were living back in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, and it was so bad that she woke up 
like, it was keeping up, and it was like three o'clock in the morning, and she says to me, looks me up, and she says, I'm going, I gotta go to the hospital because I can't stop coughing. And I mean, I should have been worried, but I just wanted to sleep, so I just went back to sleep. Uh, she came back very quickly because it was three o'clock in the morning, and I wanted to be at the hospital with this prescription, and she got this cough medicine at the hospital, at the pharmacy at the hospital. It was great. She took this, and it isn't like the stuff you can buy in the store that also has coating in it. This was stuff that was like, you know, high-end stuff. So she takes, she's fine. This is a this is a story of it where I look stupid, just to let you know that. A couple of years later, maybe a year later, let's see, we're still living in that same place. Must have been under a year later. And I had a horrible cough, so I thought, oh, I know we got that magic cough medicine. Because you know it's always a good idea to take someone else's drugs that were not prescribed for you. That's what they always say, share among your friends. It always says that way. So, but Dr. Smart Guy, I think, yeah, I can that's not a big problem. So I read the thing, it says take four teaspoons. Well, I thought it said tablespoons. So I, now I'm bigger than my wife. So that's good, because I could have killed myself. Um, so I took, and then I, the cough was gone. But I had a hell of an evening, that's all I can say. I didn't sleep. I just lied there kind of terrified about how the room was looking weird. I think the ceiling's kind of coming at me. You ever have that thing where if you have to take any drugs at all, when you have that feeling where it's like, I know I'm feeling the weird thing, this must be a drug effect, right? Like I, uh, I like cannabis like a lot, and there are times when you get kind of paranoid from sitting there going, what about it? It's like, don't do that, this is a drug effect. Don't worry about your life when you're 85 years old. Like, I, the other night, I was laying there going, what is it gonna be like when I'm old, like really old? Don't do that, that's a drug effect. This is what I kept saying to myself, the, the, the ceiling can't be curved like that. This has got to be a drug effect, but it's still terrifying. So basically what I'm telling you is don't, please don't take other people's medicine. Don't be like me. The world needs fewer people like me, not people. So it goes right to the reward system. These drugs are incredibly intense, and you might wonder why do people take them well if I inject it right in my arm and I get it feels really great right away. I've seen people take heroin, and I asked somebody who was taking heroin, what does that feel like when he was done after a, about an hour or so? I said, what's it feel like to take heroin? I said, it feels like my whole body's having an orgasm for 45 minutes. And I thought to myself, oh, I see. Well, I see why people take this. That sounds amazing. That right? sounds great. No, downside, of course, is there's a lot of downsides. It's the strangest thing when you see that, though. Like, it's just. Ugh. Oops. So let's talk a bit about stimulants. Uh, let's talk a bit about cocaine. I should tell you, by the way, I got a lot of Coca Cola stuff up there that Coca Cola had cocaine in it for a very long time ago. Over 100 years ago. Over 120 years ago. It's called Coca Cola because it has Coke, the original formulation, Coca Leaf. It's not Coca, but it's Coca Cola. Oh, look, cocaine tooth drops for your child. 
And you may laugh at that, but we would still use that today. If you've got really bad tooth pain, they'll give you cocaine tooth drugs. Because cocaine's an amazing local anesthetic. And I can see by the look on some of your faces that some of you know that, which is interesting. When you snort cocaine, your nose will go numb. There's this wonderful moment in the movie Blow, where it was about cocaine, obviously, and when Bobcat Goldthwait takes a big haul off some cocaine, it's like, I can't feel my face. And that would be the case. And of course, the former mayor of Toronto. Um, yeah, great when that happened. I mean, it wasn't great, but the part about, I love asking people having so bad about how the liberal media made the Ford, the Bob Ford take cocaine. Anyway, because it was all, it's a media thing. No, it's a coke problem. It's a classic case of somebody with a coke problem, actually. Like, when you look at it, a lot of behavior wasn't surprising. Right. What, how do these things work? Well, catecholamines, that's dopamine, norepinephrine, epinephrine, and serotonin just leak out of, neuro, out, of, out of neurons. They don't have to have an action potential, it just comes out. And the amount is released on firing is larger. You can see why these are stimulants. Oh, and ecstasy, by the way, does this only with serotonin. Ecstasy is a weird drug uh, because it's both a stimulant and a hallucinogenic. So you'll see it classified both ways. Ecstasy is, is, a, is very similar to a venom, very similar. They also block reuptake. Uh, in fact, cocaine only does this. Cocaine blocks reuptake of dopamine. And in the peripheral nervous system, you get an increase uh, in the amount of epinephrine release. This is, it should tell you then that stimulants like this are performance enhancing drugs. So cocaine would make you be able to run faster. Not a lot of cocaine, but these are these are performance enhancers. So they're banned substances for college. Yeah, one more slide. Let's talk about caffeine quickly. Like alcohol, we're not entirely sure how it works. It seems to block adenosine, and what adenosine does is. It's a neuromodulator that inhibits firing. Adenosine builds up through the day. It builds up through the day, that gets you tired. So it stops it from working. So caffeine is disinhibited. The interesting thing is here that high doses of caffeine will actually block benzodiazepine receptors. So unlike, so you know like with alcohol, some people think if you just have some whole bunch of coffee, all that takes you is a wide awake drug. But if you go in and you take a lot of value, they'll, they'll give you a shot of caffeine. I don't mean a coffee, they'll, they'll shoot a thousand milligrams into your arm. Um, but yeah, which is like the equivalent of a chemical coffee. You'll hear a lot of people say, caffeine doesn't really make you any more awake, it just makes you not tired, which means the same thing. Just because the mechanism of action is that it inhibits inhibition doesn't mean 
that that's not being less tired. I, people have these very strange ideas. It's like up there with people constantly saying, yeah, you're going to get a dopamine hit. You know what I like? People who know things. You know what I don't like? People misusing ideas. Anyway. Uh, why don't we stop here, and we'll continue next time. And uh, I'll see you then. Thanks, everybody. So thanks for listening uh, to the lecture. I hope you got something out of it, as I noted in the intro. Um, these are copyrighted, uh, share like 3.0 Canada, uh, some rights reserved. So you can redistribute this all you want, but if you redistribute it, uh, you can't make any money off of it. Uh, and also, uh, if you mash it up, I get to mash up your stuff. Uh, most of the mu the vast majority of the music I found was on an old website called GarageBand, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and then it was called PodSafe Music. So this is all music that I have, uh, that it's perfectly reasonable to uh, put on these podcasts. Uh, if you are interested, I can oftentimes find the, the name of the band. The name of the band will be listed in the post. And uh, go look these bands up and, and buy their music, because... Um, if they're cool enough to let me use this, you should be cool enough to pay 99 cents or whatever to buy one of their songs. Uh, on that note, I will see you next time.